It's 1906. A great earthquake has shaken San Francisco. A different kind of shockwave hits the church as two apostles resigned from the Quorum of the Twelve over plural marriage disagreements. And sadly, the faithful life of Jane Manning James comes to an end. This is next in Chapter 9, Struggle and Fight. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today is Jed Woodworth, the Managing Historian of the Saints Project. Jed, thanks for joining us and welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Shailen and James. Great to be here. We are now reading the final chapter of part one, and I think readers might be interested to know why this volume covers the period from 1893 to 1955. Jed, can you tell us about some of the things that have to be considered when structuring the Saints books? Sure. Every Saints book is structured along uh, four parts. Part one generally introduces a problem that the entire book is going to unpack and answer by the end of the book. Part two generally takes a downward arc where we get deeper into the problem and we discover that the saints are having obstacles to try and solve this problem. Part two brings us to a point where the problem is unsolvable by the church's own devices. They really need divine help. And then part three, we generally start coming up toward a solution and and part four ends in the answer. And the book ends with the Swiss temple being dedicated, which is the first temple outside of the United States and Canada to be dedicated. And it is a heroic achievement in many ways because we know that Europe was decimated by two world wars, uh, worldwide depression. And then within just 10 years, we're able to build a temple and staff a temple in Europe. And so what that implies is a large-scale out-migration where saints are leaving the Great Basin. So we know in the 19th century, Brigham Young, John Taylor, and others asked the saints to come to Zion. And Zion was defined geographically. In the early 20th century, uh, President Grant specifically says, we want you to stay in your native lands and build up the church there. So in addition to those congregations that start out as branches and become wards, and then the wards become part of stake organizations, we're seeing many people leaving and helping to strengthen the branches and the wards elsewhere. So in this chapter, the end of part one, what we're seeing is an information war that is going to be something that the saints have to figure out. How is it that they can win this information war? How is it that they can convince their neighbors that they as Latter-day Saints are to be trusted, that they can be a part of a Christian community, a world community of churches, and that they belong on that stage as players on that stage? Thank you so much for that, Jed. I think in this chapter, we really get a sense of this frustration on the one hand, but still a sense of peril on the other. There's so much still going against them, even when they feel like they've overcome some of the challenges. Now, there are obviously some more challenging topics. We see that there are some individuals who are still participating and entering into new plural marriages. And I wondered if you could tell us why people were still choosing to enter new plural marriages even after so many instructions to stop. 
Sure. So it is a complicated question. Why is it that a segment of the church found it so difficult to give up plural marriage? Today, of course, we look at monogamy as being something that everyone would want to choose. Of course, in the early 20th century, the saints were coming out of a time, the last 50 to 60 years of the church's history, where plural marriage was taught. The saints were told that it was God's will. And we believe that it was for a period of time in order to build up the church, to raise up seed to God, and to strengthen the church in various ways. Plural marriage also elicited great opposition on the part of the United States government and other governments. And we're seeing this in Great Britain, for example, in this chapter, and in Germany, where there's a lingering suspicion that the church still teaches polygamy or plural marriage, as the saints like to call it. We know that that was not the case, that from the pulpit, this teaching disappeared in the late 1880s. Wilford Woodruff actually told church leaders we're no longer going to give sermons favoring plural marriage or talking about its merits. Privately, it depended on the church leader who would counsel about plural marriage. Uh, Some of the leaders felt like this was a practice that was not coming back. There were others as early as the, the early 20th century who believed that if we could just get the goodwill of the people outside of our church and that they came to trust us as being religiously sincere, that we could then come and practice plural marriage again openly. So there was a difference of opinion in this matter. But I think to answer your question, James, it really did come down to how willing church leaders were to pivot away from the 19th century teachings that had accrued over time, had been built up, and this, of course, provided a precedent for future practice. Were you willing to turn away from those precedents, or were you pretty much rooted in the 19th century rhetoric? And as we know, President Joseph F. Smith was well poised to make that transition of facing the future and away from the 19th century plural marriage rhetoric. Well, in addition to still dealing with these post-manifesto plural marriages, we read in this chapter another difficult topic about the excommunication of John W. Taylor and the disciplining of Matthias Cowley. And this is a very serious matter. How did they react? How did their families react? Great question, Shaylin, about the families of John W. Taylor and Matthias Cowley. So these two apostles were among the most talented preachers in the church. They had many friends, many devotees, and John W. Taylor was famous for his prophesying, and many of his prophecies are still held to today, for example, that there would be a temple in a tiny town of central Arizona, which there is today. Known as one of the foremost preachers in the church, people could listen to his sermons for two hours at a time and not get bored. And so there was a great sense of loss when it was discovered that they were holding to a view of the second manifesto that was out of step with church leaders, namely President Smith and the rest of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. So President Smith, as you'll recall from a prior episode or from reading the book, had issued the second manifesto in April of 1904, in which he essentially put teeth into the first manifesto. The second manifesto said, anyone who continues to enter into plural marriage will be subject to discipline procedures, especially excommunication. But between 1904 and 1909, the church had not acted on this. So it was 
you could call it a paper tiger. It was a statement that President Smith held to, but he did not go about trying to discipline or root out continuing plural marriages. In 1909, the Salt Lake Tribune published a long list of Latter-day Saints who had entered into plural marriages since 1890, and more specifically since 1904, which was of greater concern to church leaders, because 1904, if you enter marriages since that time, it makes it look like the church is party to those marriages. So they started an investigation led by Francis Lyman, who was president of the Quorum of the Twelve, and President Lyman's committee discovered that most of the stories that they had gathered led back to John W. Taylor and Matthias Cowley. So they didn't perform all of these marriages, but they had deputized men and specifically several stake patriarchs to perform them. So when the two apostles were brought to discuss this in the fall of 1905, the brethren went through a very wrenching week and a half survey of their activities and decided that they needed to sign resignation letters, which they did. We begin this chapter, chapter nine, with President Lyman announcing that the resignations had taken effect the following April conference. But until 1911, the men were actually not brought to account before a tribunal in any way. And at that tribunal, they had a different reaction. You know, John W. Taylor was a much more combative personality. He was like his father in many ways, President John Taylor. He was defiant against people that were trying to tell him what to do. And so he was excommunicated in part because the evidence against him did point to him having married a sixth wife in 1909, which is incredibly late, five years after the Second Manifesto. He did not admit this, but circumstantially, he did not deny it. And so it sealed his fate. And then he didn't react well at the disciplinary council. And so he was excommunicated. But Matthias Cowley was a much more mild person in temperament. He was conciliatory all of his life, even though he held to a different view about the church's disavowal of plural marriage. Matthias was told not to use his priesthood. He wasn't actually disfellowshipped, which is something that people sometimes get wrong. He was told not to give priesthood blessings or administer the sacrament or anything like that. On occasion, he continued to give speeches down till the end of his life in, in his full reinstatement in 1936. John W. Taylor, on the other hand, lived his remaining five years until he died of stomach cancer in 1916 out of the church. But he has many, many believing active descendants that come out of his family line. And remarkably, they are in the midst of publishing a, a biography of John W. Taylor. It's a collectively written by the family, and they're using materials that they have gathered over the years that no one has had access to. And one of the beautiful things about working in a managerial responsibility on saints is that you get to see the miracles from a 30,000-foot view. And in this case, the story of John W. Taylor, which is such a challenging one to tell accurately. We thought we had it right. And then at the midnight hour, when our drafts were done, I got an email out of the blue from one of the great, great grandsons of John W. Taylor, who told me about this biography and said, we're very concerned that Saints gets his story right. 
And so we had a number of conversations and they sent me their manuscript and we were able to learn from the manuscript that we largely had the story right, but in a few particulars, we made some changes that were coming out of documents that we hadn't seen and indeed that no one had seen. And I was so incredibly grateful that this happened when it did. I mean, it really happened at just the right time for us to get the story right. And so I think the readers of the John W. Taylor story, any, any passage that mentions him, you can know that great care has gone into every word and that we think this is about the best that could be done given the existing documentary base. So Jed, I'm always amazed at the timing of some of these providential events where out of nowhere, an answer to a question or extra material appears And obviously, the team is packed full of professional historians, professional writers. These are specialists and experts in this field. But I wonder if you could tell us about the role that family and local historians play in the researching and writing of saints. So the stories that we tell in saints come from many, many sources. If you look at the endnotes, you can see the amazing variety of sources. In a lot of ways, it's like looking at an ecosystem underwater and you see all of this beauty and strange coral and different colored fish. I think we rely mostly on corporate records. So First Presidency Correspondence gives us the highest view. And fortunately, that correspondence has been accessible to us by the kind graces of the First Presidency. But we also rely on interviews, oral histories, reminiscences, Of course, diaries that people keep that have been donated to the church or diaries in private possession. We found many documents in private possession that we went out and found. So often there will be a story that we know exists. We think the story is going to be a dynamite story, dynamite in the best sense. But we know we don't have the documents here. And so what we do is we use family search quite often to locate We locate the person that we're interested in, who we think is at the center of a story, and then we find who has posted memories on their family search page, who has posted photos or any kind of documents. In the future, that may become problematic as we get further and further away from the people who posted original material. So then family search allows us to send an instant message, just like Facebook, where we can contact someone who's posted and we tend to get a pretty good response rate that way if we send an internal message or we can use a directory to locate people. I've had success finding people online and then just showing up at their doorstep if they happen to live in Utah and knock on the door and say who I am and what I'm doing. And so we've had some miraculous discoveries in that way. Well, Judd, as we continue discussing kind of these tougher topics and kind of sensitive situations that we read about these characters experiencing as a historian and as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, how has researching these kinds of stories affected your faith? Shailen, great question about my own faith. I have felt in every instance that I can think of, my faith has been built My faith has been strengthened. And I don't say that trivially. I don't say that just to dodge the question. I really believe that. And and I think a lot of it has to do with the way we find a character. Characters are not just sitting around like rocks. 
they don't just appear as you walk outside your front door and you take a walk. They don't just magically appear. There are a few characters you know we're going to feature. Presidents of a church, for example, pretty much given. The only question there is what stories we're going to tell. But some of the other characters, for example, the Ike Russell character in this chapter and Emma Lucy Gates Bowen, those are characters that we had to work to find. So probably my most favorite character in the chapter is Emma Lucy Gates. So what is of interest here is there's something deeply paradigmatical about her life here. What she does, she's born in Utah, the first child of Jacob Gates and Susie Young Gates. So readers will know Susie Young Gates as a character from volume two, and we bring her back again in V3. But one of our tasks is to show how the church transfers itself from one generation to the next. And so we saw that with Sousa. Sousa was the daughter of Brigham Young, and we saw that transfer and how she was able to carry on her father's legacy. And now in V3, we're looking at the third generation. And what we see with Emma Lucy is that she goes out into the world, which, as I've already said, is really part and parcel to what this volume is about, going out into the world and becoming a model minority. So you've got overwhelming odds against you, your very small Latter-day Saint contingent wherever you go outside of the Great Basin. How do you live your church affiliation? How do you be a Latter-day Saint in the world? That is one of the main questions of this volume. And in Emma Lucy's case, she goes to Berlin, of all places. She's in Europe, and she's there for many years. She goes back and forth between Salt Lake and Berlin. But for the large bulk of the decade between 1900 and 1910, she's in Europe studying to become a great opera singer. And what's interesting about that is this is one of the most appealing parts of of our church, I think, the restored gospel. Namely, we are encouraged to seek learning, to seek intelligence, light, and truth, and to progress as people. We believe that God has sent us here to gain experience, but to gain wisdom and to gain excellence. And in her case, she's going out and she's rising to the heights of her profession. She's in an opera house in Berlin, which is the center of the opera world at this time is in Germany. And she has a decision. Does she assert her Latter-day Saint affiliation? And she knows that the church has not yet arrived at a state where this could not be a deficit or a demerit on her record. And so she is fraught with some tension and she does decide ultimately that she's going to declare herself a Protestant. And I think you could make a roundabout case that if we're not Catholics, we're Protestants. If there are only two choices, then we might be called that. But her father, who's as faithful a man as you'll ever see, says, you're not doing wrong. We all know that you're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And she's not, but she knows that she has to make this choice given the circumstances that surround her. And I find this to be quite a moving story and a relevant story today. Latter-day Saints go out into the world today, just as Emma Lucy did. They go to school, maybe they're going for work, and they have a choice. Do I announce what church I belong to or do I not? Now, I think today it's an easier choice because we don't have the same challenges that she did in 1910, but it's still a, a question mark. How to deal with the dilemmas of going out and being an extreme minority I think that's what I like about this story. 
She still worshipped privately. She met with the saints in Berlin until the police started monitoring their meetings and sending informants to the meetings to find out what was being discussed. And when she discerned that it was no longer safe, then she started worshipping in private with saints in Berlin. Thanks, Jed, for sharing that. I appreciate how you use her example as a faith builder for you. Right. Well, Jed, let's look at some of the other scenes in this chapter. We see examples of how the church is making great progress. They have increased faithfulness. There's greater tithing revenue. There's some acceptance of the church in, in places. So there's all these positive steps, but it seems that although a crisis is maybe overcome, another crisis kind of rears its head. Sure. So there was a style of journalism practiced at this time, and we see this coming out in the chapter Journalists who are trying to evoke social improvement and social change, pointing out corruption and various forms of problems in the city in particular. And corporations or large organizations were ripe for this style of journalists. They were being attacked left and right. And so the church, as a corporation that was growing in wealth and influence, you know, we hadn't been out of debt that long, but it was perceived to be the case that the church had their hands in a lot of different businesses. And so one of the images from this time shows President Smith in the middle of an octopus with these tentacles going out. That was the perception, was that the church was involved in many temporal matters. And the concern here is really twofold. One is, are the saints honest about ending plural marriage? That was one of the concerns. And the second concern, which is arguably the larger concern, is is the church really just a church or is it a temporal kingdom that is going to control the lives of its members and by extension the lives of people who represent it like reed smoot so if reed smoot who's an apostle of our church sits in the u.s senate who's he going to take his orders from president roosevelt or president smith in salt lake and so the temporal power of the church is really the issue here. And so all of these magazines that are criticizing the church, they're concerned with the amount of power that emanates from Salt Lake. Well, Jed, thank you for giving us a little bit more context into that. And I'm just wondering if you could share with our listeners, what are some of the lessons the church has learned from these incidents? Yes, this is a very good question, Shaylin. What are some of the lessons learned in this chapter? One of them that the church had to discover really by being backed up against the wall is that it pays to go on offense. And by that, I mean, in that very last scene in the chapter, what we see happening is Joseph F. Smith, the president of a church, actually going out and giving an interview. This is not something that had been done in our church. We don't have a history of the presidents of a church prior to this time giving interviews with national reporters. Once or twice, I mean, Brigham Young was approached many times by journalists as they passed through, but that's different. That is the journalists coming to the Lion House and asking President Young for his views on things. But this is a case where President Smith goes to the Washington Post and says, I want to give an interview to you. I want to set the record right. And I think this is something that we've had to learn through trial and error, and it hasn't been a linear type of thing. I wouldn't say that from 1911 on, we've always excelled at this. But in general, I think it helps to frame things as you want them framed, 
So when there's a crisis, you've got a couple of choices. One is you can go hide under a rock, or two, you can sort of defend yourself and spin an answer. Like you can say, you've misrepresented me. It's not like that. But that's not really playing offense. Or you can say, this is what we believe. This is what we do. We are honest people. We're good people. And I think we see that in that last scene, which in a way, it's a perfect ending for part one because it suggests that the saints have not figured out the problem of being in the world yet. They're still not totally trusted, but we see a glimmer of the solution, which is if we go out into the world and we show our best selves, that is about the best thing we can do. It, it's a fact. I mean, it's been proven over and over that if Latter-day Saints go out and just be their best selves, that they are generally liked. We've got so much in our church that is likable, that is interesting, that is good and praiseworthy and so on, just like the article of faith says. I think Emma Lucy Gates' story of going to Berlin and excelling, that also is a form of Latter-day Saints showing the best that they have. And so I think in all three of these stories, what we see is something similar, namely we see an attempt to to play offense, to show people what we really believe, and to show the best sides of ourselves instead of just spinning backwards. With the third generation of Latter-day Saints who is coming of age now in this book, we're seeing different responses to the church. And these responses are fundamentally different from the second generation or the first generation. In those earlier generations, what we see is basically a bifurcation. You're either in the church or you're out of the church. You're in the church if you gather to Zion, and basically that's the main thing. But if also you're a super faithful person, if you practice plural marriage, but the main thing is gathering to Zion, right? And then the second generation, they start to have other things that define whether you're in and out. Are you a full tithe payer? Are you keeping the word of wisdom moderately well? Law of chastity starts to become more important in this era. The third generation has an even greater difficulty. Not only do they have the behavioral imperatives of the second generation, but they then have to decide, okay, if we go out into the world, how do we comport ourselves as Latter-day Saints? Are we going to be front and center, aggressively Latter-day Saint? Are we going to be more receding? And if we only worship in a very small congregation, what does that look like when we go out into our workplace? And so these are questions that aren't settled. They have to be negotiated one person at a time, and it really depends on the proclivity of the person. So in Ike Russell's case, there were periods when he was not active in the church. He fought in the Spanish-American War, goes off to Stanford, and earns a degree in English. And Stanford, for those who are unaware, is one of the top flight institutions of higher learning in the United States. And then he moves to New York and he gets a job as a reporter with the greatest newspaper of its era, the New York Times. Like Emma Lucy Gates, he has reached the pinnacle of his profession, but he's more receding. These stories are parallel intentionally. So Emma Lucy Gates hides her affiliation with the church. Ike Russell also hides. He's not known as a Latter-day Saint, but his reaction is to aggressively seek to correct the record because he has this history in the church of family. Uh, his grandfather is a high church leader, Harley P. Pratt. 
he knows the history and he knows the doctrine and he can tell when a magazine, for example, is telling a lie or shading the truth. And it's just driving him crazy at this time to read this stuff and realize most of this is shoddy journalism. It's filled with errors. Now, again, that's a very current type of reaction, right? Any one of us, when we read an article online today, we may look at it and say, this is terrible. This is not accurate. What do we do? And Ike Russell decided, well, I'm not going to just sit on my hands and do nothing. I'm going to write letters. He wrote furious letters to the editors, and he said, here are all the errors. And I've looked at these letters. They still exist, where he chronicles page after page, paragraph after paragraph, the errors in these magazines. And he tries to get a hearing to write rebuttals, and not everyone wants this. But then he goes ahead and he does get some editors who are interested to publish his articles. The most important thing he does is he goes to the big fish. Namely, he goes to President Roosevelt, who is now ex-President Roosevelt. And he says, you've had experience with Reed Smoot. And behind the scenes, of course, Reed Smoot and Teddy Roosevelt, they belong to the same political party. Teddy Roosevelt loved Reed Smoot. He had worked with him enough to know, I can trust this man. And Ike Russell knows this. So he goes to Roosevelt. He writes him a letter and he says, can you vouch for the character of Reed Smoot? And that ultimately is what helps squelch this magazine war. Once you have one of the most powerful political operatives in the United States at that time saying, look, Reed Smoot is a good person, and I know the Latter-day Saints. I don't have any problem with them. That's the essence of a letter. Then you've conquered the misinformation. And so the testimonial of character becomes super, super important. I mean, I can't overemphasize how important this becomes. That, I think, is ultimately why Smoot won. He prevailed because in the four years he had served in the Senate, he was a trusted and known voice, and he was just super competent. And by 1920, he's going to rise up to the highest level of the Senate, chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, which holds the whole purse strings of the United States. I mean, it's amazing that by 1920, the U.S. had basically said, yeah, we're going to trust all of the money to a Mormon, whereas in 1911, it's contested still. But it's a very rapid transformation that happens. Well, Jed, we also in this chapter have the story of Jane Manning James. You know, we've been able to follow her throughout all of Saints. And in this chapter, we read about her death. And she leaves a beautiful testimony. And we'd like to listen to this passage from the book. The Lord protects me and takes good care of me in my helpless condition. And I want to say right here that my faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ as taught by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is as strong today, nay, it is, if possible, stronger than it was the day I was first baptized. Jed, Jane's story is a really sad one. She dies waiting and hoping for her temple blessings, and she just is so faithful throughout her life. But why is her story included in Saints, and why is this scene of her death such a significant part of her story? Jane Manning James is introduced as a character in Volume 1. We see her first in Nauvoo, where she migrates from the East Coast in the United States. And then we pick her up again in Volume 2 when she is on the trail 
and she arrives in Salt Lake City in the first company in the fall of 1847 after the advance company. We see her from time to time, and we debated what to do about Jane's life in volume three. And the question is, do we have a scene that ties up her story or do we just leave it with volume two? And and ultimately, we decided that we needed to tie up her story. And there isn't a lot of what we call present action in her life in the last decade of her life. That is, what would ground a scene about Jane Manning James? And ultimately, we decided that the funeral provided the best documentation, and that allowed us to say that she had not been endowed. But it also allowed us to review recent events in the last two decades of her life, including her sealing to the Smith family and other conversations that she had along the way. I think one of the things that this life teaches us is We're always going to be confronted with trials that are not of our own making. Jane was born into the skin that she was born into, and she was born into a racist world, a world where black, white, bond-free still existed. And it was not a post-civil rights world, the world in which we live today. And so she had to exist in this world. She had to move in this world. And the question is, how does she do this? I think we show her existing with grace and dignity and faithfulness. She was able to be baptized for her dead. She had many, many friends in the Salt Lake Eighth Ward. She served in the church and was served by others. At her funeral, hundreds of people came. Even President Smith spoke. So it's a complicated story, and we don't pretend to have all the answers, but I do think that one of the lessons that her life yields is what do we do when trials come and difficulties come that are not of our own making? And I think she presents a model for us of how to respond gracefully. Thank you, Jed. I think that's a beautiful way of putting it. And I think there are two other very important lessons that we can learn both from Jane and from her friend Elizabeth. That is that Jane was prepared to tell her story and Elizabeth was there to help her. And I just think if those two sisters, you know, if Jane hadn't told a story, if her friend hadn't helped her, we might be missing out on such a a beautiful story that has application for us today as well and can help us to better appreciate what she and and other Black Latter-day Saints were experiencing around this time. Thank you. Well, Jed, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast once again. Thank you for sharing your expertise and insights with us. And we're grateful for all the work you do on Saints. Thank you very much, James. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.